Well, today we're going to continue identifying and understanding the defeat of Satan. Last week we established the many mentions of Satan in Scripture. I had detailed that there are various adversaries, which is the literal translation of the ancient word Satan, revealed throughout Scripture. Satan is used in Scripture as a general noun to speak of adversaries such as King Rezin of Aram, the angel of the Lord that blocked Balaam's donkey. Sometimes it's not so much a being or a person, but rather a way of thinking, as is seen with King David in his numbering Israel, whereas Satan is also used as a proper noun to speak of the Satan, the adversary, as a specific enemy to God's people, the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy In outlining the various different mentions of Satan, I gave us a sort of framework. First, I pointed out that scripture is like a mosaic, in that there are a bunch of literal little pictures filling up a larger picture, or forming a larger picture. Also, I sought to guide our thinking by having us question, what is the main battle happening from Genesis to Revelation in scripture? Who is the adversary that is revealed? What are the two sides that are revealed there? How was and is the adversary defeated? Last week, we left off talking about the dominion of Satan, as mentioned by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 18. And I want to take a look at that text, if you don't mind. So Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 18. Here the Apostle Paul is testifying before King Agrippa, and he says this, in speaking about the Lord appearing appearing to him on the road to Damascus. The Lord said to me, Get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you as a minister and as a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and the inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So these two sides, the Jews and the Gentiles, are those to whom the gospel is being preached and they need to be saved from the dominion of Satan. And in Matthew chapter 15, verses 6 through 9, you read about how the Jews were in the dominion of Satan. They were in the dominion of Satan by way of their traditions invalidating the word of God. Again, the Jews were given the oracles of God. However, they began to have traditions that invalidated, the best word to use there. And they invalidated the the word of God. They made it void. And they put their traditions above the word of God. And then in the Gentile world, they were in the dominion of Satan because they had not learned the truth. They were in in the world without God, without hope. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. So the gospel is rescuing them from this dominion of Satan, thinking according to their traditions, their own desires, their idolatry, their wickedness, their carnality. So the gospel is going against that. Now the next thing we see mentioned is the schemes of Satan. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to turn there. This is the second letter the Apostle Paul is writing to a to Corinth, and listen what he says. Chapter 2, let's start at verse 5. Let's start at verse 5. 
But if anyone has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I will forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So now, let's talk about this text here. These are the Judaizers. Because in the first letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, we know that there was a man there that was doing things that, not, that was not found even among the Gentiles. So you have a Jewish man beginning to do some obscene things with his father's wife. And the Apostle Paul basically says, kick him out of the church, deliver him over to Satan, and allow him to, uh, maybe that'll bring him back into the fold, allow him to repent. This is church discipline. This is removing him from amongst the flock so that the leaven will not infect the whole lump. And the Apostle Paul admonished the Corinthian church to remove him. So now, seeing that I guess this gentleman has now repented, he want, he's seeking forgiveness, and the Apostle Paul is reminding the church that if they forgive him, he will forgive the man. And he goes on to point out that they are not ignorant of the schemes of Satan. Now, Satan, the carnal mind, the Judaizers, because they're those that are operating by way of their carnal mind, their traditions, the thinking of man rather than the thinking of God. So they're going to use this, they're going to scheme to use this as an opportunity to bring this man back to the law of Moses. Because again, he was kicked out of the community and you know it's going to uh, cause excessive sorrow if you do not allow him to repent and come back into the fold. Because the schemes of Satan, they're going to use this to get him back. We are not ignorant of that, so therefore we're going to extend our forgiveness and bring him back into the fold so that he would not be overtaken by excessive sorrow. And also, think about how the mind works. When you're away from the community for too long, your carnal mind begins to creep up upon you, and you begin to think that nobody will forgive you, that God doesn't forgive you, and it could just go from bad to worse. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, we read about the battle, the armor the saint is called to put on, the spiritual battle that we are called to engage in. And it talks about forces of darkness, wickedness in high places. I like the wickedness in high places aspect because this is a conceptual reality of being used by God. Somebody that has been drawn up into the presence of God, into the heavenlies, and is being used by God. I had mentioned this last week, that in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, two texts that are often used to assert Satan as a heavenly being that fell from heaven. These two texts are talking to two literal kings, and those two kings are operating by way of their carnal mind, which is the antitype, the bigger picture. But these two kings are puffing themselves up above the throne of God. When the king of Babylon was given the opportunity to bring judgment upon God's people for 70 years, do you suppose that he turned back and he said, thank you, God, for giving me this power? No, he, he said, I'm mightier than God. I will do whatever I want. I will ascend even above the throne of God. You see, the conceptual reality of being in heavenly places and wickedness in heavenly places is being in the presence of God, being used by God. And we see here that the wickedness is in high places. I guess I would argue and I would bring before you to, or challenge you to think who was the adversary to the church at Ephesus? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, 
the Apostle Paul, in talking about the persecution that he has endured, he says that I have fought wild beasts at Ephesus. Well, who was feeding the Apostle Paul over to wild beasts at Ephesus? It was the big Colosseum games, the gladiator games that the Roman Empire was known for. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But if we are afflicted, it is for... Yes, sorry, sir, um, I'm sorry, uh, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, for our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we, have been, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. See, they were being persecuted in Asia, which Ephesus is one of the churches in Asia Minor, that are also mentioned in Revelation, the first three chapters of Revelation. And... They were persecuted at Ephesus. Who do you suppose? The Gentiles, the Roman world, was persecuting the Apostle Paul. They are the forces of wickedness, wickedness in high places, that was persecuting the church at Ephesus, the enemy, the adversary of the church. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Rome, says that they will soon crush Satan under their feet. And this should remind you of the gospel promise that we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when Adam and Eve committed that sin that they are, they are given a promise that while the serpent will crush the seed of the woman's, I'm sorry, the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman that is being outlined there as the promise that would crush the head of the serpent, the adversary of the people of God that will always lead us to trust in our own carnality rather than trusting in God. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. What's happening through Jesus Christ is getting rid of carnality, is getting rid of that sin of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of life. The church is the body of Christ. The church will soon crush Satan under their feet, and we know that in AD 70, at the coming of the Lord, that the nations were put asunder, and you'll understand that more as we go through the text this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, we see that same thing I had mentioned before. That's the hand him over to Satan. Um, somebody in the church was doing things that they should not be doing, and they were uh, told to hand this man over to Satan, the man that was sleeping with his father's wife. And we also see this mentioned about Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, false teachers in the church, and how they should be given over to Satan so that they would come to their senses and repent, and then be allowed back into the fold. Matter of fact, we see this in the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son listens to his carnality, takes his father's inheritance, goes and squanders the inheritance, then comes to his senses as he's feeding pigs. You know, the Jews, it was forbidden for them to touch pigs. Imagine cleaning up after them. So he comes to his senses in that environment and then turns back to his father. And that's feeding him over to Satan, letting him do his own thing, letting them go the way of their own desires, traditions, and carnal way of thinking. That which invalidates the word of God. Allow them to go that way, the way of the adversary, so that they would repent. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, we read about how if the husband and the wife do not fulfill their obligations to one another, that they allow Satan to tempt them. Again, I don't believe that there's a fallen angel that tempts men or women to go against their obligations and their commitments to their marriage. Again, it's the carnal way of thinking. Carnality being revealed. There's no Satan made me do it here. The Satan is you thinking in your own, in the flesh. 
operating by way of carnality rather than thinking the things of God, focusing on your commitments, your obligations, and what would Jesus do? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, we read about the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air. Again, carnality ran rampant in that first century. We've seen the Gentiles with their way, the Jews with their way, serving as adversaries to the people of God, to the truth of God, and many clung to the ways of the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, we read, I find this text very interesting here, because here we're reading about the Apostle Paul's thorn in his flesh. And it says here, if you actually have the the, the Greek understanding, you would see that it says the angelos of Hasatan, of the Satan, the, the messenger of the Satan. Interesting. Well, what messenger of Satan was tormenting the Apostle Paul? I don't know anybody, any Christian on the planet that would suppose there was an angel that he's talking about there. I know that's good for movies and films and imagination, but nobody would argue that here theologically. There's many different views, for example, um, some have said that it was blindness because the Apostle Paul was persecuted in various cities and rocks were thrown at him and it could be a temporary blindness that humbled him in his writing of letters to the churches and in his life. Um, I've heard some others argue about a, a disease or a physical ailment. Um, I've, you know, I've come to completely disagree with the view that it could be a wife. Um, some have argued that theory, though. Um, you know, again, we... Uh, Whatever you put that adversary as, it's an, a messenger, an angel of Satan. That should lead us into our, view, our talk next week as we talk about angels. You'll see here that the angel doesn't necessarily have to be a being. It's just something that is tormenting him. It's a messenger. It's something that's sending a message. Interesting text there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18. I find this text very, very interesting and very answering and telling, very telling um, in regards to searching out who is Satan. 2 Thessalonians, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 2.18. The Apostle Paul here, writing to the church at Thessalonica, he says, I'll start at verse 17, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a very short while, in person but not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. So who is Satan here? Who do you suppose hindered them from coming to the church at Thessalonica? Well, let's go to the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is giving us the historical detailing of what is happening here. So Acts chapter, let's see, we're right here. Acts chapter 21. Again, this one's going to be very telling. Acts chapter 21, verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia... Upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up the crowds and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus of the Ephesian in the city with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came upon the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came upon and took hold of him, ordered him to be bound with two chains, and he began asking who he was and what he had done. 
And then it goes on, and then the Apostle Paul appeals to the Jews, and then asks to be appeals to the council and asks to be brought before the Roman government. To appeal, he appeals to Caesar. So Satan blocked our way. This one's very interesting to me again. Um, the Jews and the Romans served as the adversary of God in that first century. And as you'll see as we go through a couple other texts here, that this was the adversary, this was the enemy that needed to be destroyed. Remember, the church at Rome, you will soon crush Satan under your feet. In Revelation chapter 20, we're going to see that the Satan, the enemy that is being talked about there is exactly this. It's the Jews and the Romans teamed up against the church. And you're going to see very specifically how it's talking about the defeat of the adversary in that first century. And it'll give us hope in regards to how firm we should be standing upon the gospel. In Revelation chapter 2, matter of fact, let's move right into the book of Revelation. Chapter 2, verse 9, and Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, we read about the synagogue of Satan. Now this text, I've seen this text abused by many. But this text, if we just allow it to be what it is, if we understand the context of the book of Revelation, which was written to the seven churches in Asia Minor in that first century to allow them to understand the events that would soon unfold, the things that, the things that had been, the things that were happening, as well as the things that would come. And in this text, it's namely talking about the different kings that had risen, the, different, the gospel being preached, and how that judgment was going to come upon that generation, the coming of the Lord, and the full establishment of the new heavens and new earth. The new covenant reality. So in writing to these seven churches, the Apostle Paul warns them and tells them about the synagogue of Satan. And he says, I'm sorry, the Apostle John says, those who say they are Jews but are not. Who were those that said they were Jews but were not? Well, the fleshly lineage. Again, they kept claiming that they were the children of Abraham. They kept claiming they were the children of promise. And we see in Romans chapter 2 verse 29 that a Jew is one, is, is one who is circumcised inwardly, not necessarily somebody who is circumcised outwardly. And that's exactly what was coming under God's judgment in that time. And that's what the book of Revelation is detailing. So this is talking about those Judaizers that were running around, um, the synagogue of Satan saying they were the Jews, but they, weren't, they are not. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 17, we read about Michael and the dragon. We read about the gospel being proclaimed and how Jesus being this mighty archangel, mighty messenger from God, and how he will destroy the dragon. Again, this is talking about the gospel, the, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the, the Romans being confused in that first century. Don't confuse the imagery. The serpent, the serpent of old, has been used throughout Scripture, was used in many different ancient contexts to depict adversaries. When you understand the book of Revelation and what it is detailing and what it is talking about in reference to preaching of the gospel, the things that had been, the things that were, and the things that were to come, all within that generation to those seven churches at Asia Minor, you begin to have a different picture of the book of Revelation. So there's so much to say there. I have a study guide on the book of Revelation I would love to... Uh, give to anybody, make available for anybody. So just let me know if uh, you're looking to that. If um, you know, you're a member of our church, you, I'll gladly give you a copy of it. If you're online, I can send you a, a PDF copy. Um, so all that being said, again, we need to understand the apocalyptic pictures that are being painted throughout the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20, this is our last text in the mention of Satan here. This is a very fun and important text. So let's take a look at it. Revelation chapter 20, we'll, do a, we'll start at verse 1, and we'll read to verse 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss, 
with a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, the Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast and his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their Hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations who are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came upon the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented forever and ever. And it's so important to understand the apocalyptic imagery that is being used here. And I'm going to give you a very simple understanding of the thousand years. Thousand years is a term that means a time of completion. It could be a long time, it could be a short time, it's just an amount of completed time. It's like many times in the Bible it'll say things such as, for God owns cattle on a thousand hills. Now it's not speaking in reference to many hills or a little amount of hills, it's just saying all the hills, complete amount. We see when David says that he's going to go out to battle and God will put a thousand by his right side and a thousand by his left side. He's not speaking in any reference to a certain amount of numbers, but he will completely be victorious over that battle. And that's what the thousand years that are being used here in Revelation are speaking about the time of completion from the gospel being proclaimed to the gospel being consummated. And Jesus came proclaiming the gospel. He came healing. We see this in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus says that if a, I'm coming into the house to you know, do the work of a strong man, he says, if, a strong man enter, if someone enters into a strong man's house, he must first bind him. He must first tie him up. And what Jesus was doing through his miracles, his signs and wonders, was binding Satan in that first century. So Satan was bound from Jesus' ministry up until about the year 64. 64, something very interesting happened. Whereas the Jews and the Romans, they teamed up here and there to persecute the church. They never were a full force against the church. Because if they were, as you'll see is revealed in scripture, they would have deceived the very elect. And... So they teamed up for a short period of time. From A.D. 64, when Nero Caesar began to reign, he only reigned a short time. Remember, Satan's going to be loosed for a short time. Nero Caesar began to reign, and he teamed up with the Jews to persecute the Christians. It was one of the worst persecutions. It was the worst persecution that happened against the Christians in their existence at that time. And they came against the church, and it seemed as though the gospel would not prevail. You know, it did. People were pushed underground. The church was almost extinguished. A lot of the most horrible, horrendous things we know about torture come from that time. And Satan was loosed on the church from A.D. 64 to 66 when Nero Caesar kills himself. I believe Nero Caesar killed up. I'm not sure if he killed himself in 68 or 66. Either way, it was a short period of time. And he kills himself and then Vespasian and Titus go to battle against Jerusalem. They came against the church, but they also came against Jerusalem. And in their battle of doing that, both nations 
were destroyed. The Satan, the adversary, was not able to be victorious in coming against the church. Jerusalem and Rome teamed up together. Both of their kingdoms were completely decimated. They, not Jerusalem, uh, Rome, not entirely in that first century. However, many say that the Roman-Jewish War was the beginning of the end for Rome. And we know in the year 400, the empire completely was completely destroyed as an empire. So I would offer that up as an understanding of the thousand years and the binding, loosing, and destruction of the Satan, the adversary of the church in the first century. What would have needed to be understood. So now when we look at the bigger framework, that big picture, we've seen all the little mentions of the Satan in scripture. When we look at the big picture and we ask ourselves, who is our adversary? Who's the adversary that worked through all of those various different adversaries? The carnal mind, carnality. Man going in opposition to God. The battle is, again, man and, man and God. Carnality and God. How was and is he defeated? Through the gospel. Through the proclamation of the gospel. By the church being victorious in proclaiming the gospel and standing firm upon the gospel. All of this was done to consummate the truth for us, to allow us to understand God's truth in opposition to the world's lies, carnality's lies. What happens to man when he trusts in the things of God versus what happens to man when he doesn't? The picture was made very clear in AD 70 as the church survived in the mountains and the adversary of God, Rome and Jerusalem, were battling with each other, frustrating each other's kingdoms. Possessing a knowledge of the historical scene and context empowers our understanding. When we come to terms with the adversary being the carnal mind, we then have the ability to move into understanding how for some this adversary is still, well, still alive and well. All the while we know that in and through Jesus Christ, the adversary is a defeated foe. So in closing, while Satan is defeated, he is still at work in the world through various strongholds, false notions, and arguments that are set up against God Men catering, men and women catering to their carnality and leading many in that idolatry and leaning upon their own misunderstandings. Therefore, I would venture to say that not being ignorant of Satan's schemes is applicable for us today. What is Satan doing in our world today? We see by various different carnal minds, people thinking according to their own ways, um, people standing in opposition to the things of God, people standing in opposition to love. So that's why on the front of your bulletin this morning, it says, not today, Satan. This has become a pop culture way of saying, I'm not going to think like that. Not today, Satan. I'm not going to let my mind wake up in the morning and say it's going to be a bad day. Or I'm not going to allow the things of the world to distract me from the mission of God. I'm not going to allow depression to take over when I should be setting my mind on things that are above. I'm not going to be anxious because I'm called to lift everything up in prayer. Not today, Satan. Amen? <laughs> so our grow and go for this week is going to be uh, something that I was blessed by learning earlier this week. I recently began reading a book called The Ten Natural Laws of Successful Time and Life Management. And in this book, some of the details of Benjamin Franklin are shared. And I just want to bring some of those details before you. Here we are. Benjamin Franklin was 22 years old and was living in Philadelphia at the time, having run away from an oppressive apprenticeship in his native Boston. And it was at this time that he conceived the idea to arrive at moral perfection. He asked himself the question, what are my highest priorities in life? And from this period of introspection, he emerged with 12 virtues, what he called his governing values. So there would be no question in his mind what those values meant to him, he qualified so that he would have no 
question in his mind as to what those values meant to him, he qualified each one of them with a written statement. Then he took these 12 statements to a friend. His friend looked at him and reminded him of humility. He put humility in, and he wrote a four-word statement describing what humility meant to him. Imitate Jesus and Socrates. Good detail there. He then organized his life into 13 weekly cycles. One for each week out of the 13, he would mentally focus on one of those virtues in an effort to bring his performance in line with his values. He first identified his governing values, and then he made a concerted effort to live his life day in and day out according to those values. So the reason I share this story with you is that a couple weeks ago I had handed out a chart, the Second Peter 1 growth chart, something I've begun implementing in my life. And in order to see Satan defeated in our world, we need to see the gospel, the knowledge of God, being effective and fruitful. Amen? So in doing that, we just look at 2 Peter chapter 1, and it says that if you, op- you do these following things, matter of fact, I'm going to read them to us. If you do these following things and you're ever increasing in them, that you will be effective and fruitful in the use of the knowledge of God. So to me, this is a very sure way by relying upon the word of God and the truth of God to defeat Satan in our lives every single day to see ourselves victorious in this battle. All right, Second Peter chapter 1. I'm going to kind of breeze through the text and paraphrase a little bit. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also apply all diligence in your faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. There you go. There's your answer. To me, that's the defeat right there. So, on top of this Second Peter 1 growth chart that I want to challenge you with this week, I'm also going to be, uh, in two weeks, we're going to be talking about living in the fulfilled eschaton. We're going to talk about a seminar that I've outlined for helping people better understand living in the fulfilled eschaton, living in the reality we are called to live in as Christians, the defeat of Satan, and victorious life through Jesus Christ. So let's end in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your knowledge that allows us to see, understand, and participate in the continual defeat of Satan for all eternity, Lord. We thank you for all the work that you have done and the righteousness and the kingdom that you have given to us. We ask that you allow the increase, that you provide, continue to provide that spirit that will allow us to be diligent in all things we are called to, especially in making our election sure. Lord, we thank you. We magnify you. We thank you that our election is made sure through your righteousness and your righteousness alone, Lord. Thank you. We magnify your holy name. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.